Let us pray. Holy God, our hope and our strength, by the power of your Spirit, prepare the way in our hearts for the coming of your word, so that we may see the glorious signs of your promise fulfilled. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Hear now God's word to us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things, according to his counsel and will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we've stated multiple times, today marks the beginning of Advent and the start of a new liturgical year. Every week we light a candle on the Advent wreath, and traditionally these candles have stood for peace, hope, joy, and love. And these are some of the gifts that Jesus brings into the world. But they're not the only gifts that Jesus brings. And so this year, we'd like to use Advent to look at a few other gifts that Jesus brings into the world. This morning, I would like to talk about the unity that Jesus brings. And although I've only highlighted a few verses from his letter to the Ephesians, I want to look at Paul's entire letter and the overarching theme of unity and oneness that he weaves throughout it. Paul had spent two years in Ephesus, had a very successful ministry there, and now, years later, he's writing to them while he's imprisoned. In the first part of the letter, he summarizes and retells the gospel story, and then he transitions to how that should reshape our story. And one of the major points that he continues to come back to, not only in this letter, but in his other letters, is that in Christ, God is uniting all things, and therefore, we are one in Christ. I want to read these verses again from the New Living Translation, because I think it says it so well. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan." I hope it stood out to you in both of these translations how many times the phrase or word, all things, everything, is used. That Greek word is actually used 22 times in various forms throughout this letter. 
So as Paul turns to his therefore second part, he exhorts his readers to be one, to be unified in Christ. He says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Notice again the repetition of the words all and one. One is also repeated heavily throughout this letter. However, I want to make clear right up front that Paul does not mean uniformity when he talks about unity. In fact, he immediately goes on to say that after those verses. He says that each of us has been given a particular gift for building up the church. Christ is the head We are the body. And as he says in his other letters, the body has many parts. So this is the challenge of the gift of unity that Christ brings us. To choose to respond every day in a manner that reflects the oneness, the unity that we have in Christ. And this is really hard for us to do because While we like the idea of unity and oneness and peace, too often we make the mistake of thinking we must all think, act, or look the same for that to be possible. But unity in the body of Christ doesn't look like uniformity. The body of Christ is a new multi-ethnic family, a new unified humanity that lives in peace. So how are we supposed to do this? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave his readers hanging. With Christ as the head of this new humanity, Paul says we are to take off the old self, the old humanity, and put on our new humanity in Christ. He goes on to lay out a number of different ways that we can do this. I won't go into detail of all of them, but he tells us that we should take off and stop listening to the lies and listen to truth. We should lay down our anger and seek peace. Instead of looking to hoard and thieve things just for ourselves, we should be generous. We need to take off our gossiping and slander and mean words and use words to encourage others. Instead of seeking after and desiring revenge, we need to offer forgiveness. Instead of promiscuity and using our freedom in Christ for the things of the world, we should be self-controlled. 
And instead of getting drunk on the things of the world, we are to drink of God's Spirit. And when we're unsure of whether we are actually putting off, taking off this old life and putting on the new humanity, Paul names four signs of the Spirit's influence in our lives. One, singing together. Two, singing alone. Three, being thankful. And four, elevating others above ourselves. When I rediscovered these verses, I thought it was so amazing that Paul, that the first thing Paul thinks of with regards to how the Spirit works in the life of God's people is singing. And then not only that, but in our current context of increased isolation and less community, the fact that he names singing alone, making music in our hearts, is especially meaningful. Somehow, even in singing alone, the Spirit is working to unite and gather us in Christ. Part of what I love about Advent and the Christmas season is all the familiar songs. I've actually been in a Christmas caroling ensemble for, I think, almost a decade now, although we won't be caroling this year. And recently, I heard an old song in a new way, which got me to looking into the history behind that Christmas carol. That led me down this rabbit trail then of looking into various Christmas songs and when and why they were written, and especially those that were performed or written during a time of national or global crisis. So I'd like to share a few of what I found. The first one is, Do You Hear What I Hear? I didn't know this, but it was written in October of 1962 by Noel Regney and Gloria Shane. And it was written both as a response to uh, the kind of American Christmas consumerism, but also it was written as a plea for peace during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The song White Christmas, although written before 1941, was first publicly performed by Bing Crosby on Christmas Day, just a few weeks after Pearl Harbor was attacked. It went on to become one of the best-selling Christmas songs of all time, and a unifying sentiment for soldiers away from home during the holidays. It was written by Irvin Berlin, who some have actually speculated that he wrote it in response to he and his wife losing their three-week-old baby on Christmas Day in 1928. Singing in response to crisis, unifying. The song Silent Night is much older, but there's a more well-known story of its influence during World War I. After Great Britain had entered the war in August of 1914, many expected they would make quick work of the enemy and be home by Christmas. 
Nearly five months later and one million lives lost, the Great War had bogged down into trench warfare with no end in sight. After days of rain, Christmas Eve night was calm and quiet. And it is said that the voice of a German soldier singing Stille Nacht was heard across the battlefield. And though the Allied soldiers couldn't understand the language, they knew the tune, and they started to sing Silent Night back. As Christmas Day dawned, the soldiers on both sides came up out of the trenches unarmed to wish each other a Merry Christmas. And there were pockets of these impromptu ceasefires on Christmas Day that year. Lastly, the song that led me down this rabbit trail, and which you've already heard in one style this morning, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It's based on the poem Christmas Bells by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He wrote it in 1863 during the American Civil War. It was also two years after he had lost his second wife and his son had gone off to the war and returned injured. The poem has more verses than the carol, but they tell of Longfellow's despair upon hearing Christmas bells during this tumultuous and divided time in our country. His final two verses are the ones that really have resonated with me and stayed in my heart and mind over the last couple weeks. He says that in despair, he bow, I bow my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead and not asleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. On the surface, one could look at our nation, our world right now, and think that there is no peace, no hope of unity in sight. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God is gathering everything, all people, all things, in heaven and on earth, into Christ. Jesus is not dead, has in fact conquered death, and is coming again to finish the work. My prayer for us this Advent season is that as we continue to battle for peace, for racial equity, for relief from the pandemic, and for unity, and as we disciples 
continue to faithfully pursue taking off the old life and putting on the new humanity. I pray that we would sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, knowing that the Spirit is at work uniting us together in Christ. May it be so. Amen.